You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. The virtue of humility has largely gone by the wayside in modern society. Pride and braggadocio have risen high on the list of admired qualities in our society. And that pride doesn't even have to be based on actual accomplishments. In fact, pride appears to have acquired a value all its own, disconnected from legitimate reasons for any kind of boasting. Think about it. If you listen to musical artists today, they engage in all kind of empty bravado in front of the camera, essentially saying, Look at me. Look at how cool I am, how rich I am, how tough I am, how sexy, how great I am. Pride can get you far in the music industry, even if you don't have real musical talent. Politicians have actually found their way into office because their pride and bravado were appealing to the American public. We have seen politicians masquerade their pride as competence while demonizing their opponents and refusing to acknowledge any deficiencies, failures, or errors on their part. Pride can get you far in politics, even if you don't have political experience or knowledge. But it's not just celebrities and public figures who live like this. Each and every person in here today knows the familiarity of this inner monologue, Do these people realize who I am? (laughs) Do they understand how intelligent I am? How clever I am? How important I am? Don't these people know how great my ideas are? Can't they see how how diligent I am? Can't they see how accepting I am, unlike those fundamentalists out there? Can't these people see that I'm better? Whether it's on naked display or dressed up as confidence, straight shooting, or self-esteem, pride can get you far in modern society. But when it comes to God and spirituality, the Christian faith teaches us that pride will get you nowhere. We are told in Scripture that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In scripture, pride is said to bring disgrace on a person. Pride is one of the few things that the Bible explicitly says that God hates and opposes. Have you ever taken pride seriously? Have you ever taken the pride in your life seriously? Have you ever thought of humility not just as a nice accessory, but as a necessity of spiritual vitality? Today, as we continue through our series on Salvation's Greatest Hits, we're going to add another layer to our reflections on Scripture's movement toward Christ and a Christian spirituality. And what we're going to see in our text for today 
is that salvation comes through humble servants, a humble spirit, and a humble prophet. Those are our three points for this morning. We're going to see that salvation comes through humble servants, a humble spirit, and a humble prophet. So let's look at our first point as we consider how salvation comes through humble servants. Our text begins with Naaman, the chief military commander of the Syrian army. He's a great man, the text tells us. He's great in the eyes of the king, and he is a formidable figure. He's favored by the king because he led the Syrian army to victory over Israel. And the text tells us that the Lord gave Naaman that victory in battle. But in spite of all his accomplishments, in spite of his so-called greatness, this man... Naaman has a problem. He suffers from a terrible skin disease, one that carries with it a social stigma and was associated by people in that society with death. He was the walking dead in the eyes of many of his his people in society, his neighbors. And ironically, salvation for this great man would come by way of the humble servants in this text. Did you notice them? Maybe they even escaped your notice. There's a little girl in verses 2 through 5, a nameless little girl from Israel who Naaman had captured on one of the raids that he led of Israel. Naaman goes on a raid. He leads a raid of Israel and he captures this little girl, and brings her back home and puts her in service to his wife. We can imagine how terrifying circumstances must have been for this little girl. This child was kidnapped from her homeland, separated from everyone and everything that she knew, and she was forced into servitude. She had no esteem, no credentials. She had no position. She was absolutely marginalized. And after her situation started to settle in on her, it would have been completely understandable for her to wish judgment on these people who stole her from her homeland. It would have been completely understandable and reasonable to hear her praying one of those imprecatory psalms. You know when the psalmist says, crush the jaw of the oppressor? This would have been an appropriate prayer for her in this situation. However, this captive little girl is a picture of deep faith and enemy love. She possesses such humility and self-forgetfulness that her desire for her Syrian captor's healing supersedes concern for her own circumstances. She brings hope into the life of an enemy foreigner by bearing witness to the healing power of God's prophet in Samaria. And she suggests to Naaman that he might be healed if he were to go to the prophet. Her humble heart of mercy toward Naaman initiates this narrative. 
And if we look at the end of the story, we notice that there are bookends in this story. It's initiated by this humble servant, this nameless little girl. And the bookend of the story is the, the pleadings of Naaman's servants. Because after Naaman is given instructions from the prophet in verse 13, take a look at verse 13. After Naaman is given instructions from the prophet on how he can obtain healing, he angrily refuses the remedy. But his servants humbly reason with him, pleading for him to heed the instructions of the prophet. And because they win him over, he submits to the instructions of Elisha and is healed. We need to consider this first point because we live in a time and a place where everybody wants to be great and impressive. Anybody out there want to be great and impressive? Okay, liars, d- delete your Facebook and your Twitter and your Instagram, okay? We jockey for power and prestige using kingdom influence as a pretext for selfish ambition. And social media feeds this frenzy because we are now aware of all the greatness that other people are putting on display through their carefully curated social media. And we feel like we're falling behind. It all turns into a mass exercise in the pride of selfishness. But this text is a gift to us because it reminds us that the Lord works powerfully and effectively through humble servants. Those who are unimportant to the world are important to the Lord. And he enlists the weak and the poor and the marginalized and the vulnerable as participants in the spread of his love. These folks are not just the targets of ministry. You know, that's one of our greatest errors when we encounter people who are on the margins. We only see them as targets of our ministry. You can imagine how condescending that feels, right? But this text shows us that the marginalized are not just the targets of ministry. They are the practitioners of ministry. God uses the marginalized. So to anyone in here feeling small this morning, because you're surrounded by great people, to anyone feeling insignificant in the plans of God, take heart. The Lord is at work in your witness, no matter what your station in life may be. He is able to make your humble pleas for the well-being of your neighbors convincing and effective for their healing, if you would simply engage. Be faithful and leave the results up to the Lord. Salvation comes through humble servants of the Lord. But it also comes through a humble spirit, which brings us to our next point, a humble spirit. Now, after bringing the little girl's proposal to the king of Syria, the king sends Naaman with a letter to the king of Israel asking him to cure Naaman. No doubt, a visit to Samaria by the Syrian military general who had just done a raid on their land required some, you know, it required some diplomatic arrangements. So, loaded up with extravagant gifts, a fortune really, 
It was a fortune. In modern day dollars, what Naaman brought with him was billions of dollars. He loads up with extravagant gifts and a letter from his king. And the general comes to the king of Israel and he delivers this letter. And the king of Israel tears his clothes and freaks out. He freaks out because he thinks that this letter, this this entourage has been sent to him as a pretext to create conflict. But onto the scene comes Elisha, who gets word of the king's actions and says, let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. And Naaman, I want you to picture it. Naaman has an entourage. He is rolling deep. Chariots were a sign of power and prestige back then. It wasn't like everybody was riding around in chariots like it was a Corolla, right? Like the chariot was not the Toyota Corolla of that day. It was the Rolls Royce. It was the Bentley. It was the, it was the, the NetJet. It was, it was the, 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 the vehicle of powerful, influential, and mighty people. So imagine Naaman rolling up with his clip. He's got his radio on. He leaned back in his seat, and his entourage is rolling with him. And he comes up to the house of Elisha, and he jumps out. My man is expecting fanfare. He's expecting a parade. He's expecting a celebration. And he is sorely disappointed because there's one person that comes out to him, and it's the servant Gehazi. And he is deeply offended. His pride is wounded. And we can get a sense of Naaman's thinking if we look at verse 11. Take a look at verse 11 when he says, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Now here's what's interesting. In the Hebrew text, Me is fronted in the sentence, suggesting an emphasis. Like, if there's anybody that he should have come out for, it's me. I'm important. Doesn't he know I lead an army? Doesn't he know that people jump at my command? What is this here? He is furious. His pride has been dinged, and he is angry. And further insult was added to the injury when he is told to go wash in a dirty river. These these people don't know who I am. I deserve the VIP treatment. I should be up in a a loft on, on the top floor. I should have the penthouse suite. I should be getting the royal treatment, the red carpet. He sent me down to a dirty river to wash. In his pride... He suggests that he knows better than the prophet and he could wash in the better rivers of his native land. But if he really did know better, then why was he still a leper? By this point in his life and with his means, he had surely pursued other remedies to no avail. He just couldn't see it. Naaman is given a simple and clear word concerning his healing, but his gut reaction is to reject it and storm away. This 
is what pride looks like. This is what pride looks like. There are modern versions of this same pride, this resistance to the simplicity of salvation. Sometimes it sounds like this. I can't believe in a God who would fill in the blank. Which is another way of saying that God needs to fit into my existing ideas. He needs to align with my expectations and play by my rules. We can also see the same pride in our American reliance on tools and techniques for improving our lives. We are convinced by that idea of modernity that with enough time, we can deal with our deepest problems. We can figure it out with our political tools. We can figure it out with our technological means. This is solvable. We just need some time. It's the hubris of our age. Just as Naaman scoffed at the instructions to wash in the Jordan, today people scoff at the idea of healing through simple faith in Jesus Christ. When people hear the simple word of the gospel, they often suggest that their waters are better. They look for their own abana and farfar. But if we really do know better, then why are we still lepers? Why are we still afflicted with countless sins and moral deficiencies and ethical failures and relational dysfunction and brokenness? Why is that the case? Think about the design and the messaging of our society. This is what you're you're expected to do. We must define ourselves. We must express ourselves. We must justify ourselves. And ultimately, we exhaust ourselves because we're trying to save ourselves. But the text is teaching us that we only obtain the healing of God when we humble ourselves. Humility says, I have issues that I cannot fix on my own. I have guilt that I cannot remove on my own. I have shame that I cannot cover on my own. I need a salvation that I cannot produce on my own. If God's clear word of salvation sounds foolish to me, Maybe it's because I'm the fool who has been duped by the lies of this world. If God's clear word of salvation seems disingenuous or too good to be true, maybe it's because I've retreated to the relative safety of my cynicism to avoid being hurt. Because that's why most people wind up cynical. They have been burned and they're like, never going to do that again. Fool me once. I will never be vulnerable again. I will never open up again so that I can be duped and made to look like a fool. So much cynicism is basically the scab of heart hurts, of wounds. Humility says, maybe I've been the problem all along. Humility says, if the 15-year-old me thought the 5-year-old me was clueless, And the 25-year-old me thought the 15-year-old me was clueless. And the 35-year-old me thought the 25-year-old me was clueless. And the 50-year-old me thought the 35-year-old me was clueless. Then maybe I'm just clueless. (laughs) Maybe, Maybe I'm clueless at every point in my life, and I need help 
and I need outside wisdom, and I need support, and I'm not sufficient on my own. Listen, you will never experience the healing of the Lord unless you humble yourself and take his prophet at his word. You will never experience the Lord's healing unless you humble yourself and take the Lord's prophet at his word. Naaman's servants come to him and point out the fact that if the prophet had given him difficult instructions, he would have listened. So he should at least follow these simple instructions and give it a chance. What they are essentially saying to Naaman is, humble yourself and submit to the simple guidance of the prophet. So Naaman finally lets go of his pride. He goes down to the Jordan River. He dips himself in that river seven times, and he is healed. And it is only after he humbles himself and submits to the seemingly silly ritual of taking a bath that he is healed and cleansed. Not through the dramatic performance of a human healer, but through the simple trust in the word of the prophet who administered the power of the Lord. And this brings us to our final point, a humble prophet. Naaman returns to Elisha and stands before the prophet who is now willing to speak with him directly. And look at what Naaman does. He tries to make payment for his healing, but Elisha refuses, even when pressed to accept it. Now, this may not seem like a big deal, but when you understand that Naaman brought a multi-billion dollar fortune with him in today's standards of money, you can appreciate the humility of the prophet. He could have become the Jeff Bezos of Israel. <laughs> For real. He could have become the Jeff Bezos of Israel. How many of, how many of you out there? <laughs> you lie. Y'all lie. If you shared the gospel with somebody and they said, oh, let me write you a check for a billion dollars. How many of y'all would be like, I refuse? I'm just trying to contemporize this. You know, you got to see the humility of the prophet here. It wasn't about him. He was not centering himself. He did not want to mislead Naaman because it was so easy for Naaman to think that he could just purchase what God only gives freely. What we see here is that salvation and healing is not a negotiation. It's a surrender. And it's freely given to all who will just humble themselves and surrender to the word of the prophet. Elisha's actions say loudly and clearly, I must decrease. He must increase. The prophet wants to fix in the mind of Naaman that the healing of God can only be freely received, never purchased. We see here that obtaining the healing of God is not a matter of how well you can barter and bargain and negotiate with God. Have you ever found yourself trying to negotiate with God in prayer? God, 
as, as Elder Kenny prayed just a, a minute ago, is a good father. He is a generous God. He cannot be outgiven. He can't be outdone. You don't have to negotiate and barter with him. He delights to give freely, especially his healing touch. The point of difficulty for Naaman was that he thought that the prophet would come out to him, stand, and call upon the name of the Lord, wave his hand over the place, and cure the leper. That was what he was expecting, and that's where he got tripped up. But here's what's profound. On this side of the gospel, we can see that the greater Elisha, Jesus Christ, did in fact come out to us. He came down to us. He stood in our midst, called on the name of the Lord as our mediator. And on the cross, he didn't just stretch out his hands over the leper. He stretched out his hands over this whole world so that every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every type of affliction could be healed in Jesus' name. This is the good news of the gospel. He is the humble prophet who humbly considers the needs of the other over himself. And he wants to fix in our minds that the healing of God is freely given, never purchased. You don't, you don't purchase it with your tithes. When the praises go up, the blessings go come down. What? That's, that's thinking like Naaman. The gospel tells us that the blessings came down first. And that's why the praises should go up. Don't ever get those flipped. We obtain the healing of Christ, not through negotiation, but by humble surrender to his word of grace. But he doesn't send us to the Jordan for our healing. He sends us to the cross where we can be assured of his great love where we can be assured that we are forgiven, where we can be assured that the accusations of the devil have met their match in the intercession of Jesus, no matter what it is we need. This is the only place where healing and cleansing are to be found. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. And all who know the glory of this humble prophet surrender, not as a one-time act, but as a way of life. And as I close, I want to offer some practical reflections on this text for you to take away with you. First, I want us to remember the humble servants who played a role in Naaman's healing. And I want to encourage you to accept that role of humble servant in the lives of your neighbors. Don't presume to know what God will or will not do. No one would have presumed that a little girl who was taken captive would be able to be the instrument that God used to bring Naaman to healing. No one would have guessed that. No one would have seen that coming. Do you think you can see God's plan coming? Don't presume to know how he might use you. You don't have to be extraordinary. You don't have to be fancy. You only have to be available.
So take that role in the lives of your neighbors. Second, I want to encourage us to take our pride seriously. I want to encourage you to take your pride seriously. It is a cancer to your life. We must seek the Lord for a humble spirit because this is not only the way to salvation, but it's also the way to growing in the grace of the Lord. There is no such thing as growing in maturity without growing in humility. There is no such thing as growing in any of the virtues of the Christian life without growing in humility. Old school cats used to say that the virtues, the fruit of the spirit, is concatenated, which is to say it's not sold separately. They come together. You either get them all or you get none of them. Humility is essential for your life. That means that we ought to be repenting a whole lot more often to our family, to our neighbors, to our friends. If we have someone come to us who says that they suspect us of some kind of error or some kind of sin, the first thing you are to do is weigh it and pray. Not to jump to defensiveness, because if you are who the Bible says you are, a beloved but broken person, then chances are you could be wrong. And the way that you begin to work through that is by inviting your community in to speak in so that you can grow in humility. I want you to remember the the word of that old school cat, John Flavel. He said this, he said, they that know God will be humble and they that know themselves cannot be proud. I'm going to say that one more time. They that know God will be humble and they that know themselves cannot be proud. Third, let this text remind you of the universality of Christ's saving work and his love for the foreigner, even his love for enemies. This was his message to his people, Israel, by working his salvation in the life of Naaman. What we see in this text is a great reversal. The outsider Naaman finds healing and the corrupt insider Gehazi is judged. It's a reminder that just because you show up at church doesn't mean that you have a right spirit within you. We're all invited to recognize our need for this humility, but also to recognize the broadness and the universality of Jesus' saving plan. Just as Elisha ministered to Naaman, Jesus says in Luke 4 that he proclaimed good news to the outcasts of Israel and to the Gentiles. He uses this text to teach his disciples about the broadness of his love. No people group is excluded from the saving designs of Christ, and no group is to be excluded from the redemptive ministry of the church. Because it's one thing to say, yes, Jesus doesn't exclude anybody, but it's another thing to make the connection that the way in which Jesus saves is through his primary means, the church. We are his mouthpiece. We are his ministers. We are his royal priesthood in the world. So it means that our ministry must reflect the universality and the inclusivity 
of Jesus' saving touch. Being reminded that no one is too far gone for him. No one is too broken for him. No one is too dirty for him. And this doesn't just apply to individuals. This applies to communities. This applies to your relationships. Do you have a broken relationship? Jesus is able to heal. We are to take hope as God's people that we may be humble servants with humble spirits who lead our neighbors to the humble prophet. Let's pray for his grace to do it. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.